This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Like an audio derecho, flattening all your medical education trees and stretching all your power line metaphors completely out of shape until they no longer work good, my co-hosts are here. Say a gusty hello to Sophie Williams-Perez. Hey, what's up? Blowing in from the West, it's Marissa Evers. Hello, hello. Uh, and like a gale force wind, Ananya Munjal is breezing into the microphone. <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, I think I've used up that metaphor pretty well. Um, <laughs> but if you thought that was all short quotes, you are very, very, very wrong. Uh, because I also have two special guests with us. M2, Abby Walling is here. Happy to be here. Along with Dr. Michael McLaughlin, an internist with Clarion Clinic in Clarion, Iowa. Welcome to the Shortcode Podcast, Dr. McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, so I asked you guys to join us today because I heard about your work uh, through our good friend uh, Robin Petzold uh, of the um, Global Programs Unit here in uh, the uh, at the Carver College of Medicine. And I heard about your work trying to understand a COVID-19 related puzzle in your small town of Clarion, population of about 3,000. Is that right? Yep. So, so can you tell us uh, something about what you were seeing um, that uh, you wanted to get to the bottom of? Yeah. So early in the COVID-19 pandemic uh, here, it was pretty clearly most of our Hispanic population that were uh, becoming infected, uh, I think, Gosh, it was probably over 95% of the first 200 or so cases that we had in the area were in that population. And so clearly there was an issue there, and we wanted to do our best to understand why that was happening. And and even more than that, I guess, whether there was anything that we could do to help reach that group of people a little bit more effectively and help them to protect themselves. And, and were these um, were these folks uh, uh, sicker than you expected, or were they were they mostly um, um, as sick as other populations that you were expecting? You know, really, I think it, it was about what you'd expect mm-hmm. uh, for COVID nineteen. As we've seen how this develops, there is a huge range. Uh, some people entirely symptomatic and only known to be positive because they had a close contact that was positive and got tested for that reason other folks that had pretty minor upper respiratory infection symptoms. And then there were the few very severe uh, cases, and some of those were even people who were relatively young and healthy. In that kind of early group, we had three patients under the age of 40 that ended up on ventilators. Which was strange uh, early on, right? Because it was, that was strange early on because we kind of thought that younger people were less susceptible um, back then, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think uh, that's still pretty clearly true, but um, that younger people are less susceptible to severe illness. But 
and less susceptible, clearly. It doesn't mean no risk. And mm-hmm. yeah, I can find you three people that would tell you about that pretty clearly. Sure, sure. So, um, all right. So that was your that was your sort of mystery. Abby, how did you uh, come to get involved? Yeah, well, originally I was planning to go to India for the summer. And that got canceled pretty close to when I was supposed to go. So luckily, Robin... Um, reached out to Dr. McLaughlin and we ended up coming up with this project together. And I was very happy with this opportunity and happy with how the project progressed and what we found out. I guess I mainly wanted to focus a project on some sort of health disparity. And um, COVID-19 was a very great project to focus on considering how prevalent it is in society. And when I learned from Dr. McLaughlin how affected rural Hispanic populations were. I thought this was a great opportunity to explore more into that health disparity and how we could learn more about it and then address it. So the, what were the what were the what were some of the things you were interested in learning? I guess first of all I wanted to know why there mm-hmm. was such a disparity and we got to talk to a number of people involved from hospital interpreters to church interpreters, Mexican restaurant owners and Hispanic covid positive patients. So we could really get an idea a fairly um, full idea about the reasons why they might be more affected. And once we figured out the reasons, we could brainstorm some of the possible solutions for going forward with COVID-19 or um, any other pandemic in the future. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us who were, you know, who were among the people instrumental in helping you find that? Who were the kinds of people you talked to? So we talked to a church interpreter, hospital interpreter, public health nurse, a um, Mexican restaurant owner, Hispanic nurse, and a couple um, COVID-positive Hispanic patients. Mm-hmm. And I learned how important social media was for their um, source of news. And I also learned that there were very few resources in Spanish that they could use um, around their community. So we really realized like how little education there was for the Hispanic population. And we learned about how a lot of them work in Um, meat processing plants or other big factories where they were not really able to social distance and they also may not have been able to take sick days um, due to lack of financial opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense how they were so severely impacted by this pandemic. Um, So I talked to the public health nurse a lot about ways that she tried to reach this community and she said she went to like ELL classes to talk directly to people and encourage them to reach out to family members, especially through social media. And um, I was able to give recommendations to the hospital about ways that they could better educate and protect the Hispanic community. Um, You sent me some information about what you found. And um, it seemed like after there was, you know, there was initial fear of the unknown and then there was complacency. And you know, that doesn't seem unusual to be like looking at the, the larger, um, you know, the, the, you know, the American response to this. Right. Um, yeah, I'd say that they're in that way. That was very similar to the rest of the population. However, it might have been harder for them to social distance effectively because they live in large sure. multi-generational households sure. and work in places where social distancing may not be possible. Yeah. Um, and there were some delays in understanding the serious nature of. COVID-19. Again, similar, but um, I I was interested in the sources of education. You said social media 
um, was among the most important. Right. And so we're talking about, of course, like, was there a particular um, type of social media that they were learning from or was it all social media? Facebook? Mainly Twitter? Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Um, I can't say that Facebook is a great source of <laughs> public health education. Um, and also churches um, was another source that, that you noted. Yeah. I learned from the church interpreter that a lot of the members of the congregation are um, uninsured and undocumented. So they might be too afraid to reach out to the hospital for any advice or information about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So the church would actually be their first go-to. Yeah. And the church seemed to be very um, involved in gathering information about COVID and texting, emailing, calling members of the congregation. It seemed like daily to really give them up-to-date information. So they were at it. They were sort of ahead of it. Yeah, for sure. In, in some ways. And then word of mouth, of course, um, is another important thing. Right. Um, it's interesting. I, I was sort of thinking of this as sort of parallel to what I heard about um, other disease outbreaks. Like I remember Ebola in the Ebola um, outbreak a few years ago, how important it was to, you know, maybe not rely so much on official channels, but to get involved in, um, you know, involved in or ask religious leaders to get involved um, and to really start educating that way. Sophie and I are from the same area um, for like hometowns, and we have a lot of meatpacking industries in that area as well, like the Waterloo Cedar Falls area. And if you were able to like extrapolate the meatpacking industries, both of them being so impacted, like how did both areas compare when they were responding to COVID with Clarion being such a small town? What do you think, Dr. McLaughlin? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, one thing you might notice that uh, Abby didn't really mention is talking to some of the leadership of some of the businesses that employ a lot of our Hispanic population. That isn't because we didn't reach out to them. And I think that is an important piece of this. And we didn't get much in the way of uh, interest in responding. But to get to your question, it's actually fascinating because we do have a meatpacking plant here in the county. And I'd say they actually did a phenomenal job of being proactive. Hmm. And there's a reason you never heard about them in the news um, is they, for example, recognize that when there is an outbreak at the Tyson that's near Waterloo, that they had a number of employees who had family members that worked at that plant. And our public health uh, locally had reached out to them a couple of weeks before that, you know, just trying to establish communication. And then when they realized that a lot of their employees would have had contact with people that worked at that plant and were driving over from Waterloo in vans every day, uh, obviously not a great situation for COVID transmission, they reached out to our public health and we were able to test all uh, almost 800 employees there in the matter of a couple of days. And there were roughly 20, I think it was 26 or so positives in that initial group. They were able to get them quarantined. They were very good about making it clear to their employees that they weren't going to be punished for uh, taking days off. They, they, I believe, even paid them, you know, while they were off for that time. You know, all the things that you would really hope to see. And there have been several sort of follow-up uh, concerns related to that meatpacking plant, and they've been just as aggressive and proactive um, in sort of the follow-up issues and 
still really haven't had any major issue at all, and they've been really proactive in trying to get uh, changes made for their workers' safety. And uh, I think it's really a shame that we weren't able to get some interviews from the businesses because there really was a um, a big difference in how that particular meatpacking plant and how some of the other egg production facilities in the area, which do also employ a lot of our Hispanic population, responded. Uh, just night and day difference, and um, and it would be, I think, really helpful to get an honest uh, sort of opinion from some of the leaders of those places about what. Um, they would do differently if they could have done it again. And, you know, what would have helped them maybe recognize that they could help uh, those sorts of things. My sense is that a lot of places waited for there to be problems before they, uh, unlike this particular plant you're talking about, waited for there to be problems before they acted. And at that point, it's kind of, you know, approaching too late. Um, And and my, um, you know, Abby maybe didn't get quite as much of a sense of this. I think she got some, but just because I've actually personally cared for a lot of these patients um, and have been, I'm also the medical director for our county public health now, so I've been pretty involved in a lot of ways. Um, One thing that I think a lot of these places failed to realize is that their employees weren't going to tell them if they had symptoms. if they didn't make it very clear how important that was and that they weren't going to be punished, there wasn't going to be a financial hit. And um, and they were screening, and I think that they thought that that was sufficient. You know, they were, asked, they were taking temperatures, which we know even people that present for medical care, it's something like a quarter of them have a fever at the time of presentation, even when they have substantial other symptoms. And so that just really wasn't a very effective method of screening. And um, employees were coming to work when they knew they were sick. Uh, they didn't have any doubt about whether they were sick or not, but the screening simply wasn't effective, and we didn't have um, quite as strong of an idea of how protective mask wearing was, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a big push uh, mm-hmm. for that up front and led to a lot of a lot of issues. But again, kudos to the meatpacking plant because they just, they did such a great job and, and really didn't have a major issue. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. It's kind of unfortunate that they didn't get media coverage with how well they handled the situation, mm-hmm. whereas with Tyson in the Waterloo, Cedar Falls area, that didn't go as well. And then you have poor new, like you have news coverage of a poor situation and then that freaks everyone else out. Mm-hmm. Having known that someone who actually handled it properly, I think that would have like incentivized more people to handle it in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. What were people doing? Were people treating themselves? Were people seeking out medical care or were they treating themselves? That's a good question. So I talked to a number of the of Hispanic people in the population and they they believed in using traditional medicine. So a lot of people I talked to mentioned like garlic with lime infusions, for example, and other um, remedies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so most people that I talked to said if they were to have symptoms of COVID, they would start using these home remedies and would not go to the hospital unless they had breathing issues. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, clearly that part of that is probably because they were afraid of getting 
of getting, you know, swept up in an INS situation or things like that. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, were there, I mean, and, and language must also have been kind of a barrier as well. Right. The hospital interpreter told me how overwhelmed people were by not only were they having to speak to through interpreters, they needed to wear PPE and everyone around them had PPE. So it was just a very overwhelming situation and they might not have gotten all their questions answered while they were there. Um, the employment conditions where they work, you, I mean, you said this particular plant did pretty well and I assume part of that was spacing people out and, and, um, and, you know, proper use of PPE, but, um, Maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't as available or easy to do in some other in some other places. Yeah, that is certainly especially early when PPE wasn't really easy to get. You know, some of that isn't totally the the fault of any of these employers. There just wasn't really a good option. Um, but it is true, I think, that some of these occupations, you know, a meatpacking plant, they're mostly at stations and they can put dividers between some of the stations and there are things that are fairly easy to do. I think a big danger in a lot of these places actually has been break rooms and, and cafeterias mm. um, because even if you're using PPE, it tends to come off then and people tend to be close. And um, But there are jobs like in the the egg facilities where it, it's not so easy to put physical barriers between people and um yeah it's just sort of the challenge that they had to deal with were, were there aspects of um of the hispanic social culture that that um contributed to their susceptibility yeah the hispanic people i talked to lived in multi-generational homes and as we know, now there's a huge spike because of people 18 to 24 years old who may be socializing. And then once they socialize and maybe get it from a bar, for example, if they go back home, they could infect their mother and their grandma and their grandpa. So that um, was one aspect. And typically Hispanic people have large families and they may continue socializing with their large families throughout the pandemic. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed about um, the, the, the people that I know is that they're still not always taking into account all of the links in that chain. Um, so they may be like, oh yeah, we're, we're, uh, you know, our family's cool. You know, we just, we just stay in our family. Oh, but my daughter is dating a bartender and they see a lot of each other. And I'm like, well, okay, that's not really, it's <laughs> not really going to work. <laughs> Um, what about mask fatigue? Did, did were they were people pretty happy to wear masks? Was it did is it is it something that came and went? The restaurant owner that I talked to um, was very frustrated about the lack of compliance in his customers with masks. Even when he required it, they seemed very unwilling to wear masks while shopping at his store or in his restaurant. Um, and the people he talked to said they did not want to wear masks outside of work because they were wearing masks during work all day and wanted to break. Um, so, so you gathered all this information and, um, what do you, what do you think, how do you think this more full understanding of your, um, local population will help you change how you do things, um, Dr. McLaughlin? Yeah, I think that probably the biggest thing that really Abby helped us understand uh, well is how important social media is 
And I think that's something that we've really, it's not just for the Hispanic population, it's really incredible how many people get their news from social media and sometimes uh-huh. how poor those sources are. Um, but Yeah, I don't think, I don't uh, think the Hispanic population is alone in this. I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like I hear a lot of things that I, you know, hopefully follow up on, but sometimes don't. And, and who knows whether that's, you know, sort of taking hold in my head and affecting how I, how I do things. Right. Were you pointing at yourself so much? All of my news (laughs) is from Twitter. (laughs) That is usually where I like start. And then it's like, if you're, you only have like five minutes and you're like, Oh, okay. Well, I I learned that. Like, and you tell yourself you're going to follow up. And then like you said, like you kind of just don't, or you forget. I think it might stick in there and, and just sort of faster, faster (laughs) or, you know, like become a part of how you do things or think about things. Even if it's not, you know, true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's also tailored to. Maybe that should be uh, what we take away is that the best thing we can do is find a really reputable Spanish language newspaper and just pay for a subscription for, it, <laughs> yeah, for all yeah. of these places. So they get their news somewhere else. Well, I was going to suggest also that, I mean, doctors, um, I, think they're, I think doctors are, are, I mean, a lot of doctors are active on Twitter. Um, in fact, my wife hangs out with epidemiologists on Twitter now, which, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't get the sense that, it, it, I don't get the sense that, that doctors feel super comfortable um, giving out information on social media. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. It's yeah. like in every single person's bio where it's like, views are my own. Yeah. These are not like of anybody else's. This is like not of my employer. Yeah. yeah. This is an opinion. Like, this is how I feel. There's nothing more. Yeah. But, but I mean, it seems like, I mean, is this an opportunity that's being missed, I guess, in some ways? I think these doctors like get like messages too. Sometimes like these like doctors will post like, please don't send me like pictures of mm. your Rash. Like, skin or like your blood pressure. Yeah. Or, like, yeah, like don't, you know, DM me your um, personal. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also, um, you know, I mean, is it, is it really, is it really uh, what doctors want to want to be doing with their time? Yeah. You know, like being this resource for the mm-hmm. entire world mm-hmm. um, also seems like a bit of a burden. Because mm-hmm. they can post the initial thing, but the problem is all the follow-up. Yeah. The explanations. So, yeah, that are, all yeah. the questions that are going to come in, mm-hmm. like the threads that get made off of this, the people that yeah. are going to refute it with fallacious information and like things like that. So it's yeah. it's hard to mitigate that if you want to post something to begin with that all of the time and effort in the minutes and hours ensuing that are going to mm-hmm. take up a lot of time. Yeah. That's why I think this- I, yeah, I can second that and just from personal experience, I've been pretty involved in trying to communicate good information out to our community here and um I, I really only do that through the hospital's um, Facebook account and not through my own personal account. But even that, uh, like I wrote something with some of the best information to me at the time about uh, what the schools could do, and it really was only intended for our local schools. And there were angry responses on both sides, and there was some guy from Minnesota who's, oh, geez. Uh, oh, no. uh, Minnesota. who's uh, father actually is a professor at the University of Iowa, and he cited his father as saying that I was completely wrong and a fool, you know, basically. 
And it's just silly. Like, you know, I wasn't writing for somebody from Minnesota. I'm writing for my community. I live here. I know what the situation is. I literally see every single COVID test that goes out from our community. Mm-hmm. I know who's positive and where. Mm-hmm. And, and and also, I, I know that our community isn't the same as, say, a bigger city in that regard, where um, we have half of our school population or our Hispanic kids that their parents work mostly ag jobs. And I tell you what, they aren't going to learn online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a different situation. And, and I think that's the thing that gets lost on social media is that context f- uh, for which you're writing for. And, mm-hmm. and you're exactly right that trying to follow up and answer all of these rebuttals that that can really be burdensome. I think that's why it was really smart to like do these like community leaders, like these like church interpreters, like targeting people that uh, might be like talking to an audience that's receptive and in a way that, I don't know, could make it more understandable than like a source on social media or like somebody you don't trust, like somebody anonymous. Um, you're meeting people where they live and yeah, that's pretty important when exactly. you're trying to communicate. Yeah. And I, one of my friends uh, used to like do work with like um, the WHO and like UN and um, not the band, the, the world. I know, I imagine. Um, this is maybe cooler than that. Okay, so she used to work with the World Health Organization. And I remember, I think it was like during Ebola. I don't know. One of, it was like, I think it was Ebola. But um, she was like working in Africa to like help like people, like tribal communities, like understand like why they, like how they can, um, you know, protect themselves. And like one of their practices was like to sit with like a dead body for a while mm-hmm. after. I'm sure like this is like, was I think published and yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. And so they like use like a lamb as a proxy and they like use their like, like tribal leaders and like religious leaders to like explain to people, like not even coming from like a medical standpoint, which I think is important. Cause like to us, mm-hmm. we're like worried about the medical standpoint, but you know, people have like beliefs that are stronger than that. I think that's fair. Um, so like using like religious leaders to explain that, like why, if we use this lamb as a proxy, maybe you can like sit with this lamb instead of like a dead body. And I don't know. I think that makes sense to me to like use a community leader. Like, like you said, meeting people, like using somebody that people meet on a weekly, whatever basis that they have like had years of trust with, as opposed to like a doctor. And like, we think we're like smart and, you know, we think we like are helping and we, and we are like, obviously like have the best of intentions, but um, I think it's important to consider that like we're, you know, like giving this advice to like everyone and these people don't know who we are. And they yeah. Don't, yeah. 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 There's not a lot of trust there exactly. that's been built up. Yeah. Um, Rapport. Much, much, like right, <laughs> much, as, Caps one. much as you might like to think that you're, uh, you know, that you've got all the answers. Um, they don't, they're not going to believe you. Not necessarily. You world is telling me I have <laughs> none of the answers. <laughs> yeah. Someone studying for CK. Yeah. <laughs> it me. <laughs> and Marissa. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that's for sure. Um, I want to take a break just for a second. Uh, to tell our listeners that our listener drive is officially over, but we still would love for you to go ahead and share the show often with those you think will enjoy and benefit. And if you send a screenshot of that share to the shortcoats at gmail.com, I'll send you a free SCP sticker that I myself, Dave Etler designed. Oh, now I know you're going to do it. <laughs> and as a special challenge, if you uh, put that sticker on a laptop or face shield or whatever, and then you take a selfie while displaying it in one of your classes, I will send you a second sticker for free. Because that's how I roll. I just want as much publicity as I can get for free. 
Um, so thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate it. Post it with the hashtag shortcoatpodcast. And uh, I'd appreciate that. Thank you very much. Dr. McLaughlin, I wanted us to take this opportunity to discuss rural medicine with somebody who practices it. Um, as I said, Clarion is a small town, maybe 3,000 people. What's your practice like? Uh, very unique. Um, so I'm a general internist, and I uh, have ended up taking care of a lot of the most complex you know, patients in our area, Most all, all of my partners. I'm the only um, full-time internist here. We have one other who um, works part-time. So I end up taking care of a lot of the more complex patients in the area. Uh, I also supervise our hospital uh, care, and um, I'm also kind of unique in that I um, got training to read echocardiograms and do endoscopy and residency, and so I also do colonoscopies and and read echoes for the hospital. Um, so I think one of the big differences in rural medicine is you wear a lot of hats, and uh, that's a it's both a lot of fun sometimes and it's a huge challenge. Uh, I mean, you don't, you don't get to, uh, you know, do things quite the way you do at an academic center uh, where you get a focus, you know, on a smaller subgroup of problems or even one location of care where, you know, I don't get to be a hospitalist or an outpatient internist. I really have to do both. Um, and it's fun, but really hard. And um, honestly, I think the hardest thing sometimes is just not uh, having as many other people around that you can bounce things off of. Uh, it gets it gets to be really challenging. But I should say too. And then one of the other things is that you end up more involved in some of the the mechanics of a hospital. You know, we have a lot smaller medical staff here, and so when something like COVID happens. You know, we use the people we've got and we don't have an infectious disease, you know, physician to, to guide us there. And guess what? The internist is as close as it gets to that. So here I am. <laughs> How did you come to um, rural medicine in the first place? Was it what you set out to do? Uh, no, actually. So I went to graduate school before I went to medical school and I really intended to be a physician scientist. Uh, and then I met my wife. And Man. Uh, that Women. changed. <laughs> Women. No, just yeah. Kidding. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, my wife is a family physician. We graduated in the same year from medical school. And uh, her desire was always to come back to a small town, not necessarily her hometown, which is where we ended up, but uh, <laughs> it just worked out that way. And, and so after I met her, I kind of thought, well, I'm going to have to you know, find my intellectual stimulation somewhere else. And that's kind of why I worked on some different skills than most uh, internists would do. And that's kind of what keeps me, keeps me engaged now is just doing a lot of different things rather than knowing one thing really well. So that's part of what you like about working in a small town then is that ability to. Yeah. It's, it's part of what I like and what I hate. I mean, it, it's like most things in life. It has its positives and its it, negatives. Yeah. Oh, so what are so are there other challenges besides having to know everything? Because that's kind of a lot. Know it all. Yeah, that's like a that's pretty funny. pretty uh, good one. <laughs> and what do you when when you when you do when you do have a puzzle that you, um, you know, a medical puzzle that you can't quite figure out on your own? 
who do you turn to then? Yeah, it, it, a lot of times, depending on what the puzzle is, it might be uh, colleagues that I know from my training. Uh, if if it's an area that I have a good friend who happens to specialize in that area, a lot of times, you know, that's one of the great things about going to a place like Iowa is you've got a lot of good friends by the time you're done that uh, end up doing a lot of different things. Um, so that can be a place. I, I did my residency uh, in Des Moines at, at Methodist Hospital where the branch campus is there. And, you know, there are a lot of people there that I trust too. And, uh, and then other times it's just, local subspecialists, just as an example, uh, there's an infectious disease physician in Ames who has been very, very helpful when we've reached out to them. And with this COVID situation, when uh, remdesivir became available, it was almost impossible for places this small to get it. And uh, Mary Greeley in Ames actually sent us some because we were having as many, if not more cases than, mm. than they were. So there can be some really great local partnerships too. Just, you know, there are a lot of people in medicine just trying to do the right thing and take care of patients. And if you ask for help, it usually comes. It sounds like resources then are also sometimes a challenge. Yeah, it definitely, definitely can be. Um, resources in a lot of ways, you know, it, a lot of times I think the biggest challenge with resources is sort of cultural and educational, you know, that the patients often don't have the same understanding of their illness, or at least there are a larger proportion of patients that don't have the same understanding here than certainly than you would find in Iowa City. I mean, Iowa City is just such an uh, incredible place with a lot of really bright people that, um, you know, you can explain something to them at a very high level. And uh, here, you know, there's a lot more of our population that isn't in that boat, whether there is a language barrier or a cultural barrier with some of our Hispanic population. Um, you know, again, kind of coming back to that population, they have really tight family structure, but it's complicated. If you're the only one in your family who is in the United States and everybody else is back in Mexico, there might not be the same support networks that way when someone's ill, um, you know, who looks after the kids when a parent has COVID, for example, there are just a lot of uh, things like that, that the challenges are different. They might not be bigger challenges or, or smaller challenges. They're just different challenges. Yeah. And, and education is important too. So you could be the smartest person. You could be as smart as a whip, but if you don't have the background to, mm -hmm. If you don't have the, the background knowledge to understand things like, you know, viruses and bacteria and things like that, you know, that's if it's just foreign to how you think of the world, then that must be a big challenge to uh, talk to patients uh, and get them to understand. Do you yeah. so do you use a translator yeah. for like your Hispanic speaking populations that don't speak English? Or like, do you have to use like the like um, digital like translator? Yeah. So we, we have. Uh, four full-time Spanish interpreters oh, here between our um, hospital system. Three of them are here in Clarion, and then we have one up in Belmond, mm -hmm. uh, which is just about 15 minutes away, and we have a second hospital there. Um, so most of the time we're able to, to utilize them, and I can't tell you how much that helps, yeah. you know, because the, the patients do get to know the interpreters just as well as their providers, mm -hmm. and a lot of times those interpreters have their kind of 
ear on the pulse of that part of our community in a way that I never could. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times when we will use like a language line also. Actually, for COVID inpatients, we've mostly done that just to spare the interpreters from any possible exposure. Mm-hmm. And it's it's worked okay, but as Abby, I think, discovered from some of the patients, and I, I can totally understand how that happens. A lot of the patients still don't feel like they really understand mm-hmm. uh, what's going on. and. And I observe it, too, in talking with them that a lot of times they maybe don't ask as many questions as you know they have, no matter how many times you ask, like, what questions do you have? And there's just nothing that comes out. Well, I find that I have that problem myself just because I need time to process what I'm being told and Mm -hmm. to come up with questions. I mean, I'm not stupid, but Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel that way when I go away and I'm like, shit, I should have asked that very important question. Um, it yeah. just, and that's know, a lot more complicated when you have an interpreter and you can't just bop back in the room mm-hmm. and answer their question because yeah. you've got to find that second person that can help you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's our show. Dr. McLaughlin, internist in Clarion, Iowa. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Um, and Abby, Sophie, Marissa, Ananya, thanks to you as well. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. And what kind of, yeah, thank you for coming. And what kind of Iowa nice human would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on uh, wherever podcasts are available. I remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean it can be what you want it to be about. Send questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT, and we'll talk about it on the show. Hey. While your podcast app is open, and I know it is, uh, please be the kind of listener we are always grateful for. Give us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing this podcasting thing right. Uh, thank you very much. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Gover- Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. <laughs> <laughs>